Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about calming yourself and calming others, how self-awareness and diplomacy can rule in these less civil times. And my first guest today is Dr. Tasha Yurik. She's the author of Insight, Why We're Not as Self-Aware as We Think, and How Seeing Others Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and in Life. Dr. Tasha Yurik is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. With a PhD in organizational psychology, she is also the founder of the Yurik Group, where she's helped thousands of leaders and teams improve their effectiveness through greater self-awareness. Dr. Yurik has contributed to Entrepreneur, CNBC.com, and the Huffington Post, and has been featured in outlets such as Forbes, the New York Times, Fast Company, and Inc., and she's here today. Dr. Yurik, welcome. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. Oh, great to have you here. Your first book was a New York Times bestseller entitled Bankable Leadership. What is it about self-awareness that has piqued your interest for the subject of this book? It's it's such a great place to start because my passion for the topic of self-awareness really started out as a slow burn and ultimately became something that that felt so important to me as a researcher that it completely changed the course of my career. I was, uh, I am still an organizational psychologist. I focused primarily on leadership. But as I was doing this work, as I was coaching executives and companies, I sort of saw two types of, of executive. Type one was somebody who, you know, really wasn't very clear on who they were or what they wanted or what they valued. 
and was also not clear on how other people saw them. And so these are people usually who, you know, they could get promoted, but they're ticking time bombs in a way where it's not a matter of if, but when you really start to get in your own way, whether or not you know it, um, whether or not you're willing to work on it. I just saw that time and time again, it was so limiting for people. The other side of the coin uh, that I saw so many executives and I got to work with so many people who put the time and energy in to really seeing themselves clearly and understanding how other people saw them. And those people were always not just more successful, but they were, to the subject of this, they were happier. They were more fulfilled. They were more confident. They were less stressed. And so that was really what set me off on this course to say, you know, we toss around the word self-awareness a lot at, at work and in life. Usually we talk about it in the absence. We say, oh, that person isn't very self-aware. But I was surprised at how little scientific research actually existed. And so that's what my research team and I have been doing for almost the last four years. And, and that leads me to the question, uh, to ask you to define what is self-awareness, because I think we think that we know what it is, you know, but, you know, I'm sure you can define three or four or five basic tenets of what it is exactly. Exactly. So there overall at a high level, there are sort of two categories of self-knowledge. So one of them I call internal self-awareness in my work, uh, which is, you know, sort of what most people think. It's having an inner clarity about your values, your passions, your aspirations, understanding your personality as examples. But the other side of the coin is something that we call external self-awareness. And what that means in a nutshell is having, having clarity about how other people see us. And in our research, one of the things that really surprised me, to be honest, was those two types of self-knowledge were totally independent. So what that means is you can be high on both, you can be low on both, or you can be high on one and low on the other. And it creates, you know, sort of several archetypes of people, but that's a really good place to start for folks who want to improve their self-awareness or who want to get a better idea of, of where they stand is to say, you know, how clear am I internally and then how clear am I externally? I would guess that we do a better job of the internal self-awareness than the external self-awareness. I do think that culturally, uh, especially Americans, you know, we've been raised to be uh, fairly self-absorbed, you know, and I think yeah. sometimes that can be good. <laughs> sometimes it can get in our way. And you're right. It, it's it's scary to ask for feedback. It's scary to to try to determine if other people see us the same way we see ourselves. But but I do find people in my work who, who are the opposite. I, I call them pleasers. They are folks who are so beholden to or so focused on how other people see them that they kind of live the lives that other people want them to be living. And they, they've either lost sight of or they haven't even done the work to explore what they really want. And so that, that leads to this sort of inauthentic life of, you know, quiet desperation inspiration, I think. And, and low self-esteem, right? If, if all, if we're making our, um, well, our emotional well-being predicated upon what others think of us, we're, we're, we're out of reference, right? And ultimately the, a good self-esteem comes from, uh, that inner place of, of, of reference that I, that I'm, 
I'm good and I'm competent and I've got good values and I'm making an impact in the world and I feel good about myself is a, is a starting point that's healthier. It, it is. And I always talk about the importance of self-acceptance when you're also building your self-awareness. Mm. There, there are people who have, <laughs> there are a lot of people that have high self-esteem without any, you know, objective awesomeness. And I think we all know those people who sort of overrate themselves. But then there are so many people who, it's like the opposite side of the spectrum. They don't, they're so hard on themselves that they don't really have an appreciation for their gifts and their strengths and all the wonderful things they're bringing to, you know, the people that are close to them in their lives. So I think everybody has a different journey, but you brought up something really important that, you know, I think it's worth asking yourself, where do I fall on that spectrum? Oh, well, I'm, I'm curious myself, but let's talk about the book insight why we're not as self as aware. Uh, um, Karina, make a note there. Let's talk a little bit further about insight, why we're not as self aware as we think and how seeing ourselves clearly helps us succeed at work and in life. When in the book you talk about 95% of people fancy themselves as self aware, but we know that the figure for real self awareness is closer to 10 to 15%. Wow. That's Amazing, a wow right? to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this really has caught my attention. So like there's a little bit of self-deception going on. The joke I always make about this, you know, with 95% of people think they're self-aware, 10 to 15% actually are, is that on a good day, 80% of ourselves or 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. Yikes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing here because we, we do fancy ourselves as a society that is becoming more self-aware. People are journaling, they're going to yoga, they're, they're meditating, they're juicing, they're, you know, they're doing all these things that the, that, and the media, you know, how the media has evolved is really supports that, that, you know, make us more self-aware, but is it really self-awareness at the core level? You know, or is it just a trend? You know, like we're you're doing yeah, exactly. what's trendy. Yeah. And then the question is, am I am I being self-absorbed or am I being self-aware? And I see those two things as qualitatively differently. Um, and and you know, we found in our research, and we've we've looked at almost eight hundred scientific studies. We've surveyed thousands of people all around the world, um, and we've really found that people who are self-aware are have this sort of um, curious and open. Uh, feeling about themselves and they're always wanting to learn more versus being so focused on themselves that they are unwilling to see themselves for who they really are. It's kind of a paradox. And I think you're absolutely right that society is, you know, we sort of think we're more self-aware because we're doing all of these things for ourselves, but that doesn't mean we have clarity. It doesn't mean we see ourselves um, as we really are. We are going to take a break in a minute, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about self-awareness with Dr. Tasha Yurick. To learn more about Dr. Tasha Yurick, you can go to www.insight-book.com or her core website, which is tashayurick.com. You can find her on Twitter at Tasha Yurick and on Facebook, Tasha Yurick, and Yurick is spelled E-U-R-I-C-E. 
age. I am loving this conversation because I, I want to go back, Tasha, when we come back from the break about how others perceive us and the externally um, referenced um, way that we can perhaps improve our self-awareness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Listen up, y'all. Before we head to the break, I want to talk about Tata Tamers. Yep, that's right. It's no secret bra shopping is a drag. It's always lots of trial and error, and even then, the perfect fit can be elusive. I'm not a big fan of the mall scene either, a real stressful time waster. What if you could skip all the hassle and find the perfect bra in minutes? I just had a fabulous new bra buying experience with Third Love from the privacy and comfort of my own home. It all starts with Third Love's online fit finder quiz that recommends the perfect bra that's right for your size and shape. They're obsessed with finding the perfect fit, and that's why Third Love is the only lingerie brand that offers bras in half-cup sizes. And best of all, you can try one of Third Love's amazingly comfortable bras free for 30 days. Just pay $2.99 for shipping. You can really try before you buy. Cut the tag off, wash it, wear it all day. It's so comfy you'll forget you've got it on. I even wear mine to work out and feel supported without being restricted. If Third Love isn't your new favorite, no problem. Just return it or exchange it for free. Go to thirdlove.com slash happiness to find your perfect fitting bra and try it free for 30 days. That's thirdlove.com slash happiness to try your new favorite bra for free. Thirdlove.com slash happiness. Now here come the tunes. We'll be right back and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I really urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind. It's free. It's legal. It's available 24-7. And we're talking about insight how we perceive ourselves, how others perceive us. And my guest is Dr. Tasha Urich. She is the author of Insight, Why We're Not as Self-Aware as We Think, and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work 
and in life. And Tasha, before the break, we were getting into the differences between being internally self-aware and externally self-aware and the incongruency of perception, right? Like that, that we believe ourselves to be more self-aware than we really, really are. So we're, we're not doing so hot in that department. But what can we do to improve self-awareness, both internally, which I think we're doing uh, maybe okay at, but externally? Sure. And and those are big questions, obviously, but just to, to give your listeners something practical, maybe maybe I'll give one tool for each. So for those of you that, that think you might want to work on internal self-awareness and really kind of seeing yourself clearly, knowing what you want, knowing what you're about, how you fit into the world, there's a lot of research, very surprisingly, that shows that the process of self-reflection, you know, kind of introspecting and saying, what am I really about? is very, very flawed for most people. And it's not that um, it's it doesn't work. It's just that we often fall into traps that we don't even know we're falling into that can suck the insight right out of the experience. And without going into too, too much detail, one of the most surprising findings is, you know, if we sort of do this like deep psychological excavation where we try to figure out the, the, the core reason for why we're doing what we're doing or why we're in a certain situation, it's often often not as productive as it feels. So what I tell people is instead of going deep, go wide. And what I mean by that is instead of taking one situation or one negative event and really just trying to explore that on its own, there's a lot of evidence that people who look for patterns and themes over the course of their life tend to have a lot more internal self-awareness. So for example, if I'm in a job that's making me miserable, Instead of, you know, disappearing down that rabbit hole and, and, and starting my self-loathing or just feeling stuck or feeling victimized, I can pull back and I can curiously ask myself, this is interesting, what other situations in my professional career, you know, have been similar to this? And what are the commonalities that exist? What do those situations have in common? And those are the types of questions that the research has shown are a lot more productive and they're actually a lot more enjoyable. The, the process of internal self-awareness doesn't have to be hard and depressing and anxiety provoking. And I think so many of us accidentally turn it into that. So that would be the internal tool for external self-awareness. Uh, you know, the really simple um, piece of advice I would give is Try to find people who you know want you to be successful in your life and people who are also at the same time willing to tell you the truth. And I call those people loving critics. You think about all the people that you love and that you value. Not every one of them is going to be a loving critic. You know, I, I always use the example of my mom. If I gave her uh, my latest manuscript to read, she is loving but she would say, this is the best book anyone's ever written. There's not a single thing wrong with it. It's a masterpiece of humanity. And so for that reason, uh, you know, if I, if I want to be talked up, she might be a good person to talk to. But if I really want to understand how I'm showing up, she might not be the best person. And, and the best loving critics in our lives are not always the people we're closest to. In, in our research, looking at, you know, sort of investigating what highly self-aware people do differently, not only did we find that they were very picky about who they listened to, but sometimes they had peripheral acquaintances that they believed gave them better feedback than the people that were closest to them, which I think is really fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, I, so what I hear you saying is that is this constructive feedback is... Uh, 
also about like perception checking and um, perspective taking, you know, asking others to, you know, like really check in. It's not like, how am I doing at a girl? It's like, you know, can you tell me like, did, how did you perceive that? You know? Exactly. Yeah. This is a very, very powerful tool. I think so. And I think, you know, again, sometimes people hear external self-awareness and the importance of external self-awareness and, and they sort of jump to this place of, you know, I have a belief that the way other people see me is none of my business. And I think as, as lovely as that seems, that the people who work on this in a self-accepting way and really trying to get that data, um, they're able to have deeper and more meaningful relationships. And I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about happiness and fulfillment and calm, that's a really huge part of it. Yeah. And don't you want to know if you're being congruent? I mean, I, I'm, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know too. We were talking during the break. I was giving you an example. Um, I'm, I do a lot of speaking to share my work and I did a keynote on Monday that I, in my mind, you know, when you sort of get stuck in something like that and the whole time I was just going, Oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. Worst talk I've ever done. And then I start talking to the audience and, and my couple of members of my team were there and they said it was great. And I knew that they weren't saying it just to say it because they're always really honest with me. They're great, loving critics. But I'm always just fascinated by how differently we can see ourselves in a certain situation um, than how other people are seeing us. And sometimes it's good versus bad. Sometimes it's the other way around. But I think we owe it to ourselves to just check those perceptions. Let's talk about self-awareness unicorns. I love this term. <laughs> puts a smile on my face. I have to tell you that. <laughs> Me too. And you, I'm and, biased, but... Yeah. And you found them. Talk about them. So uh, this is one of my favorite parts about our research. We started actually by examining people that were just self-aware sort of by nature. You know, they've sort of always been good at that. And what, what I started to discover very quickly was, you know, when I asked them, what, are, what do you do to stay self-aware and, and how do you make sure you're seeing yourself clearly? I would get these answers that were, you know, infuriating. They would say, well, I don't know. I guess I, I just do it. I guess I just am. And I said, as a researcher, that is not helpful to me. And That's so, wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. And I, you know, God bless them for helping us. But I sort of had this, this uh, insight, for lack of a better word, that it, if we wanted to hack the code of self-awareness, if we wanted to find out, you know, what are the myths and realities around what it takes to get there, we would have to find people who didn't start out self-aware but who became self-aware through a, you know, really incredible amount of commitments um, and, and just a transformational improvements in their lives. And so we, we literally searched the world far and wide and we found 50, five zero people who made remarkable transformations in their self-awareness as rated by themselves and someone who knew them well. And it was so fun. We did these incredibly in-depth interviews with them. You know, I've got hundreds of transcripts, of pages of interviews where we tried to figure out what are these people doing differently? And just as one example that I think is fascinating, um, you know, I always talk about social media being, a, you know, sometimes pretty risky, sometimes makes us more self-absorbed and less self-aware. We found that the unicorns spent more time on social media than the average person. I thought, what the heck does that no. mean? Right? It makes no sense. No. 
then we found we found how they were using it was completely different. So instead of logging in and posting, you know, a, a picture of their five and a half half month old baby or their latest work accomplishment, they would they would use social media as a way to make other people's day better. So they would post a funny article or a beautiful photo or something that was really geared towards others versus themselves. And I just think that's such a great example of where we make these assumptions about, you know, what's self-awareness and how to get there. And it's not always bearing out in the data. And that was why it was so important for us to look at these folks. This is incredible, you know, because we believe that we are becoming even more of a narcissistic nation. And, and this is because of social media and the ability to really promote yourself in such a powerful way. But what I'm hearing you say is that when we are using social media or the media as a tool for the greater good, so in other words, it's not about me, it's about the we, that these people become more aligned internally as well as externally with their awareness. Amazing, right? Amazing. Amazing. And, and, And such a good challenge for all of us. It's like, you know, how can we make it about our place in the world? You know, the contribution that we make. Because wasn't it Rockefeller that said something like, the only thing that we have to show for our lives when we die is what we gave away? That's amazing. I love that quote. Right? I mean, really. And that's that's huge self-awareness for, from a man who had everything. You know, it's it's um it's interesting. So let let's talk more about um ways that we can maybe engage our friends and family in generating self awareness. Many of our listeners are our parents and grandparents, and we've got a whole generation of kids who are being raised, you know, it's kind of in the selfie nation. Yeah. How can we support them? So really quickly, there's one study I came across that I think says it all um, for parents who want to raise non-self-absorbed, self-aware children. And what the study found was the more parents emphasized how special their child was in talking to them, you know, on a daily basis, the more narcissistic they tended to be. But if the parents focused on warmth and showing them love and kindness, those were the kids that not only were they less narcissistic, they were more confident and they were more compassionate to others. So I think for parents, you can play a role in this. And that's the beauty of it is we do have more control than we often think. Wow. The book, once again, that we're talking about today is Insight, Why We're Not As Self-Aware As We Think and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and in life. And my guest and the author of this wonderful book is Dr. Tasha Yurick, who's an organizational psychologist, researcher, and the New York Times bestselling author. And um, you can find more about her and her work at TashaYurick.com. And for this book, you can go to www.insight-book.com, where I think you can find a little quizzy poo. Is that true? (laughs) Yes, this is for the good of humanity. We've put together a quiz that can help you get a high-level read on your own self-awareness. You fill out 14 questions. It's, It's very fast. You send a survey to someone who knows you well, and you actually get back information on your internal and external self-awareness and a few things you can do right away to build that self-knowledge. 
Oh, I love this. And we love quizzes. And we're going to get a whole, is there a, a separate link for the quiz that we can share on social media? You can media? find it on the, on the book website, insight-book.com. But if you want to go right to the quiz, it's insight-quiz.com. Oh, uh, we, we are so going to share that quiz. <laughs> People Thank love you. it. I mean, I love uh, it. I think it's just such a great tool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. So once again, the book is um, the book can be found at www.insight-book.com on Twitter at Tasha Yurik and on Facebook, Tasha Yurik. Here come the tunes. I'll be right back. And that is a promise. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about self-awareness, self-deception, and success. My next guest is a lawyer-turned-peacemaker. Douglas E. Knoll has a calling, and his is to serve humanity, and he executes his calling at many levels. Doug's work carries him into many dark places. Using pragmatic and practical skills of peace, he helps people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts. He's an award-winning author of three books, a teacher, speaker, and trainer, and his book is De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Bring it, Doug. We only have a few seconds here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I am very well. Very pleased Great. to be with you because anger you. is such a heated subject. Oh, talk about the timing. I mean, we live in a world, a very, very angry world today. Very we do. Sad. But anger really isn't the problem, right? Anger is a secondary emotion. Well, I, I you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate about that, uh, you know, Emotion is a cognitive construct. We're, we're, if we're talking about affect, which is what's really happening in the brain, then, then anger, rage is one of the nine basic affects that we're hardwired with. And uh, it's, triggered, it's triggered by boundary violations. People feel like they're violated, and so our, our natural response is anger, telling people, hey, don't tread on me. Right, right. So we feel maybe that our, our peace or our safety are somehow compromised. And, uh, I mean, the brain really starts to emit a fight-or-flight response, right? It becomes very physiological. 
Uh, well, that, yeah, exactly. It starts it starts um, with how the amygdala processes sensory data, and then that goes to uh, well, the circuitry is, doesn't really matter, but it it is instantaneous, almost instantaneous, and can in extreme situations be uncontrollable. Yes, and it, it makes us stupid. In in my experience, <laughs> that's right. Being angry and and dealing with a lot of anger, you know, professionally with clients. Um, I think we can agree that at the end of the day, we become a little punch drunk when we're angry. Well, I think I, I, the way I the way I prefer to to look at it is that when we're highly emotional, and the and the emotional circuits of the brain are completely activated, um, the the ability of our prefrontal cortex to function and solve problems and make decisions is deeply impaired. And so, yeah, in the shortcut, we we do get stupid. We literally cannot think our way through an emotional problem, which is why I say you can't solve an emotional problem with logic. Yeah, so true, so true. So let's talk for a minute about uh, being a lawyer Mm -hmm. and then turning into a peacemaker, which does sound like a contradiction in terms, but I I actually think that they can go hand in hand. Well, two of the most famous lawyers in history were Abraham Lincoln and Mahatma Gandhi, and they they were both lawyers. And so lawyering and peacemaking have a long tradition. But my journey started, uh, I graduated from law school in 1977, was a trial lawyer for 22 years. And what happened to me was that I picked up the martial arts and eventually became a secondary black belt. And my teacher called me in after that and said, you're done here. Um, you're too arrogant. You're too violent. <laughs> you're a trial lawyer, <laughs> secondary black belt. You're going you're gonna to hurt somebody. He, he, yeah, and I must say the language that he used was a little bit more colorful than that. But but then he said, so don't come back until you master Tai Chi. And that was a death sentence because you never master Tai Chi. So anyways, Tai Chi has two paradoxes. The softer you are, the stronger you are. The more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Mm-hmm. That did not compute. But I kept practicing and eventually started teaching Tai Chi and it – opened me up to a whole new spiritual dimension that I hadn't experienced before, at least at that level, and I became an energetic healer. And one day I was in the courtroom in a trial, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I took a week, 10 days off to really think about about what I was doing. I went up to Idaho and ran the main salmon with a bunch of friends, and I spent the week on my raft thinking about what I was doing and decided that trial work was no longer my thing. So I came back and... There is never any serendipity in my life. Um, the one and only public service announcement that was ever broadcast on our local public radio station announced a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University. And that's the West Coast Mennonite uh, University. And for those that don't know, the Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches. So I entered I decided to enter, and I entered as a master's student in the mid-1990s, and my eyes got opened to what human conflict is all about. And I left a very successful law practice in 2000 to become a peacemaker, and that's how it all started. Let's talk about what peacemaking really means. As as I conceive of it, it's a two-step process. It's de-escalating people who have very strong emotions and would rather shoot each other with AK-47s than sit down at the table and talk. And then once they're de-escalated, getting them into a collaborative problem-solving mode to solve the problem that has caused the emotion in the first place. And then ending with a durable, morally responsible, and accountable agreement 
that will that that the parties are willing and excited to be bound to, where they're not being coerced into doing anything. That's peacemaking. I love what you just said. The um, optimal result is durable and morally responsible agreement. Correct. Yeah, that that's. I mean, that sort of makes me sit up straight here. So let's talk about how we can use this premise in our everyday lives. I mean, people get flipped off quite easily. Tensions right. are high. People are stressed. We're in a political climate and now an actual weather climate that is ripe That's for right. a lot of anger because we're tapping into basic primal survival. That's right. So so the, de- the, the de-escalation strategy I've developed – was I actually stumbled upon it by accident when my back was up against the wall in a very difficult mediation in Santa Barbara, of all places, in 2004. And then uh, it turns out that the work was – what I discovered was uh, was validated by Matthew Lieberman, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA, who did some brain scanning studies to find out why this technique works so well. The technique is very simple. Three steps. Step number one, when you're confronted with somebody who's really angry, insulting, disrespectful, maybe incipient violence, number one is you ignore the words. For the next 90 seconds, ignore the words. They mean nothing. You've got to go against all your training. Everything, everybody told you to listen to the words. Ignore them. They mean nothing. Step number two, guess at the emotions. And step number three, reflect back the emotional experience of the speaker with a very simple you statement. Lisa, you're really angry right now. You're really frustrated. You're really sad. You're feeling a lot of grief. You feel like you've been treated unfairly or unjustly. Nobody's listening to you. You feel unsupported. Whatever the emotions are, you simply reflect them back with a you statement. You don't use an I statement. You would not say something like, gee, what I think you're feeling is anger. And you don't ask a question. Are you angry? Simple, reflecting you statements. And what Lieberman's study shows is that when you do this process, it's called affect labeling. When you do this process, the emotional centers of the brain quiet down and the prefrontal cortex lights up. Essentially, what we're doing is we're lending this very angry, upset person our prefrontal cortex to help them process their emotional experience. And every time, the brain circuits quiet down almost instantly. Very that powerful. is incredible. Oh, my gosh. Very powerful and very simple, and it makes complete sense. Yeah. And it's counter it's counterintuitive because we live in a culture where we we don't pay attention to emotions. We look at emotions as being negative, bad, uh, horrible. And in fact, we emotionally invalidate each other all the time, starting in early childhood. And so it never occurs to people to think about the emotional experience rather than the verbal insults that are coming across. And what and yet what Lieberman has showed us and what happens in the brains is that when we focus on the emotional experience, it it provides an immediate calming effect. And I tested this for seven years. I'm still doing it, in fact. I'm working in nine California prisons, some of them maximum security level four prisons, working with murderers, teaching murderers to be peacemakers. And it works. It works every time. It works if you work it, right? You've heard that expression before. <laughs> yeah, you can make the dis- yeah, you can as I tell the inmates, you have choices. You can you can engage in violence, you can walk away, or you can be a peacemaker and de escalate and problem solve. Your choice. I just want to give you the tools so you have good choices to make. Yeah, and everybody does want choice. At the end of the day, the anger usually, the root of the anger is somehow feeling as though we're out of control or choice has been eliminated from our toolbox in some way. It's been taken. Right, right. 
And I find that I find that ang- a lot of anger is rooted in a sense of not being loved and feeling completely and totally alone and and, and abandoned. At the okay. bottom, at the at the bottom of the pool, that's what that's what's driving this stuff. Indeed, and and we're also taught, um, maybe more so women than men, but I think that is changing with emotional intelligence being slowly but surely added to right. the school curriculum. Is that anger is bad? You know, yes. you don't you don't want to be angry. That's well, right. you know. Gee, anger can be pretty useful sometimes. <laughs> well, not only that, but by saying that anger is bad, we are denying 98% of who we are. We're 98% emotional and 2% rational. This yeah. idea that we're rational beings is totally a myth. It was invented <laughs> by the Greeks 3,000 years ago, totally wrong, ungrounded in the science. The science tells us today that we, are, we can't even be rational until we're emotional first. Because emotions tell us what to pay attention to, and they motivate us to take action. So yeah. that part of our brain that would engage in rational thinking can't even do that until we've had an emotion first that tells us we have to pay attention to something. You know, this is such an important key to successful relationship building, not just in resolving conflict and peacemaking, which, of course, we all we all say that we want peace in our lives. But we really do want good, solid, connected relationships where we feel that we're seen, heard, understood, etc. And what I see you offering here is a way to do that in sort of three easy steps that take practice to get good at. That's right. It, this, is, this is something that I tell my students uh, at Pepperdine, you know, practice this for a couple of weeks before you try it on your spouse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do this in low-risk environments, low-risk social environments until you get used to it because it's so different. It feels so weird to label somebody's emotions that we just can't get our heads around the idea that, it really does work. And I said, don't listen to the great Doug Knoll. Go out and use the laboratory of the world and experiment and figure it out yourself. The and great, they do. They come back and report amazing things. Well, listen, the great Doug Knoll and I have to like trot <laughs> off to a break here. <laughs> so the book we're talking about is De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. We're going to go to a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to carry on more of the conversation. To learn more about Doug Knoll, please visit www.dougknoll.com. On Twitter, you can connect up with him at Doug Knoll, and on Facebook, Douglas Knoll. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. That is a promise, and uh, no anger. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities, not having enough money, enough time, enough space, the list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. 
day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you've just joined us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal. We're talking about peacemaking with author, speaker, teacher, trainer, Douglas Knoll, who is a lawyer himself turned peacemaker, and his book is De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. So, Doug, prior to the break, we were talking about this three-step process that really can help quell or uh, soothe anger in another person. But before we move on to that component, I think it's important to have a little conversation about the difference between conversation and listening. Right. So when we're engaged in normal social conversation, <clears throat> if, you, if you pay attention, you'll find that the conversation is always about you. I'm going to talk about me, and Lisa, you're going to talk about you. And we'll kind of flip-flop back and forth, and, and, but we're really not listening to each other the way that we would if we really needed to listen. When we are in a, in a set of rules, social rules, norms of behavior around listening, around conversations – um, exist. There are implicit rules such as we don't interrupt and we wait our turn and that sort of thing. When we're listening, we're doing something very, very different. As a listener, we are only we are only reflecting from the speaker's point of reference. So when I say you are angry, it's not I think you're angry or what I hear you saying is angry because as soon as I use the I word, I'm in my frame of reference. So when I'm listening, I'm always going to be in your frame of reference, and the only thing I'm going to reflect, at least at the deepest levels, is what your emotional experience is. And, that, and different rules apply here because I can, I can uh, reflect your emotional experience as frequently as I want. And, in fact, I demonstrate to the, to the amazement of students uh, and people in my workshops that you can, you can literally label emotions every three to four seconds. And in normal conversation, that would be considered rude and disruptive. And I'll ask people, what do you see? And people will say, well, that's the rudest, most disruptive thing I've ever seen. And then I ask the speaker, what do you experience? And the speaker will say, almost invariably, I've never been listened so deeply before in my life. Interesting. And, and, you know, what comes to mind as you were speaking was activating empathy. That really this process is because you're coming at it from the perspective of you or the other, that you are automatically – placing yourself in someone else's shoes. Correct. This is, a, this is a way to create, a very practical way to create a very deep empathic connection almost instantly. Everybody talks about empathy, but nobody really teaches us how to do it. This is how you do it. So we're in empathy school at this moment. That's <laughs> we're in empathy school right now. Right? We, are, we are an empathy activation program right here, and, right now on Harvesting Happiness. <laughs> and let, let, me, let me say there, there are reasons why. There are a lot of people who say, heck, I, you know, that SOB, I don't want to be empathic with him. Let me talk for a minute about the benefits to you, the listener, when you do this. Two things happen to you. First of all, you are totally grounded. So people can be spitting in your face with insults and provocations, and you will not feel the slightest bit of anger or upset, you'll be totally grounded and centered because you're focusing on their emotions, you're ignoring the words, so you're centered. But here's the really cool part. Because you're focusing on their emotions, you lose your ego just for about 10 or 15 seconds and you actually have a transcendent experience of oneness. And it happens every single time you do this. And it puts you into a blissful state. So it's a spiritual practice too. Absolutely unbelievable. 
I hear you. I, 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 I deal with some cantankerous characters and I find that I, I place myself, myself in their shoes in this way, not exactly in this three pronged approach, although I'm going to start trying it like today. Um, uh, but really, once you do that, when you see somebody beneath what they're saying, beneath the words, and you see actually at a soul level, I mean, now I'm going to go to a different place with it. That's um, right. you, you don't see separateness. That's right. That, and and that is, that, that's the great power of this, is that not only are you de-escalating and calming down this very angry, potentially violent person in front of you, but you, you're soothing yourself, you are staying calm and centered, you're empowering yourself. And you're having a transcendent experience while you're doing it. I mean, how cool is that? It's 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 beautiful. It it truly is beautiful. Let's talk a minute about how to apply this to having a politically polarized conversation because <laughs> this this has really split up even families. And I've noticed this even in my own family where we had some fence jumpers and I won't say which side or the other. Right. But it was it was uh it was really hard and it continues to be really hard as things um change in the climate. That's right. I'm being nice when I say that. I understand. We we though it's so difficult to to um to talk about this subject without offending somebody but here's how here's how i approach it first of all if i'm engaged with somebody who's politically polarized and they have radically different beliefs than i do if they're escalated i will de-escalate i'll simply validate their emotional experience reflect back their emotions get them calmed down then i'm gonna if i if i'm compelled or to engage them in conversation i'm gonna my first question is always going to be this what in what happened in your life? What are your life experiences that brought you to the beliefs that you have today? Tell me how you came to these beliefs. What in your life led you to this belief structure? And so now I'm asking for a story and I'm asking for an autobiography, which I will listen to and reflect on. The next question I might ask is, how do your beliefs guide you? How do these beliefs that you have guide you in your everyday life? How do they help you make decisions and kind of navigate where you're going in life? And nobody's ever asked these questions before, so they have to think about it. And then the third question I might ask is, how do you, how do you deal with people who have different beliefs than you do? How do you navigate that? And how do you keep yourself from getting really crazy? Or if you do yeah. get crazy, is that the way you want to live? Notice that in all of these questions, I never ask about the beliefs themselves. Yep. I only ask about the effects of the beliefs and how the beliefs were formed because the beliefs themselves are not important. What's important is how they guide decisions and guide behaviors. It's interesting because I have asked um, people who are politically very different than myself. I mean, I'm curious. I want to know what motivates a person to have the beliefs that they hold. And oftentimes, um, they can't really explain it. That's correct, which is why you don't ask about their beliefs. You ask about the life experiences they've had. Yeah. And that will give you information about why they formed the beliefs they had. There are very few people who can adequately and clearly and cogently describe what their belief structures are. All they know is they've got a feeling about this, and they can't even articulate that very well. But if you can engage them in storytelling, they can get a lot of information, and you can get a lot of information too. And this is where you find out that there is so much common ground. Yes, that at the end of the day, that our um, our needs, our desires, and our wants in life are more united than they are disparate. That's correct. 
That's absolutely correct. So that's how we have conversations with the political polarized. We don't try to persuade. We don't try to argue. All the, all the science shows us, brain scanning studies by Drew Weston and his people at Emory show that when you confront somebody who has a deeply seated political belief with facts that are true but contradictory to that belief, dopamine is released in the brain to strengthen and embed the belief even deeper. You're just making people more stubborn. They're not gonna let, they are not going to let – they physiologically cannot let go of their beliefs in the face of contradictory but true information. They can't, all it does is strengthen their beliefs. And you see how this causes polarization because people become more and more entrenched as they are confronted with facts, not fake news but real news. And they can't, they're, they're in cognitive dissonance and all it does is strengthen their belief. Oh, I mean, I have teenagers and young adults, so I know what you're talking about. And my <laughs> guess is that you do too, <laughs> or have had. You know. So, um, by the way, this, these skills work really well with with teenagers. Um, you know, if you want, really want to see a behavioral change in a teenager, just just de-escalate by labeling that teen's emotions in the moment, and watch what happens. It'll, it'll blow you away. I've taught middle school and high school teachers how to do this, and they say the classroom management problems go away. They just disappear. I would think so, because oftentimes the teenager can't articulate his or her own emotion at oh, all. That's exactly they right. Don't, they don't even know. And it's funny. I, I work with young adults uh, most days of the week, and I often ask them about you know, d- defining their emotions, what's going on, and they say they don't even know how to define their emotions. And That's in my right. case, it's, it's early recovery from substance abuse. That's and right. so there are other things going on in the brain that you know, the brain right. is repairing. So this is a really, really valid point. Let's, let's talk about um, evil and violence. Uh-huh. How do you mediate and attempt to peacemake in well, the midst first, of that? First of all, you have to be careful about terms. So what, is e- what does evil mean? One person's terrorist is, not, is another person's freedom fighter. Yeah. So you've got to – I mean to me, I think that you're really looking at evil as something that is morally so repugnant and reprehensible that it, that it, it cannot be tolerated. And so genocide, for example, is, is an example of evil. evil. What, again, what you need to do – as a peacemaker, you have to suspend judgment because you're trying to de-escalate and problem solve and engage people. So you have to you have to become non-judgmental about stuff that would otherwise probably you would consider to be more morally reprehensible. And you have to seek to understand, listen, engage, de-escalate, and and find out what the underlying what what are the underlying causes of this behavior. You know, and and a lot of times it's it's despicable what the causes are. But you still have to take the time to figure out what the causes are, if you can, and find out if there are other ways of solving the problem other than through morally reprehensible acts. It's difficult work because um, because you do have to suspend judgment to work with what most people would be considered to be evil. But I'll tell you, I've worked in maximum security prisons with some people who have done some pretty awful things, and um, I know that they can be worked with, and I know they can be trained as powerful peacemakers, and I know they can be de-escalated, and I know they can be reflective if they're approached the right way. And these are people that you would see on the street and run as fast as you could the other way <laughs> when you look at them. Um, and yet they turn out to be some of the most powerful peace ba- peacemakers I've ever worked with and ever trained. Uh, I agree with you. I, 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 I have had uh, 
the experience of working with the population you describe. And it was very similar to yours that, um, there is a lot of power and, um, sometimes, uh, these, most of the time, in my view, these are good people that made bad choices, you know, that, that, that's true. And, and there are also people, the other thing that we have to understand about when we're talking about moral reprehensibility is that a lot of times people engage in heinous acts because they have been deeply traumatized themselves. Indeed. Every, every single murderer I've worked with in prison has a, has a life story of trauma and abuse that just is awful. Awful. Will you come back and talk about that another time? Any, because anytime I think you want. Yeah, I think this is a very, very powerful conversation because, yeah. you know, we're talking about morality and, and judgment and other, uh, other forms of emotional and social intelligence that do lead us to a path of a more satisfying life once we activate them. Um, we're out of time, and I want to send listeners over to your website at www.dougnoll.com, on Twitter at Doug Knoll, and on Facebook, Douglas Knoll. The book is Insight, Why We're Not As Self As Let me, let me, that's not you. That's our other guest. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Ha, ha, ha. This is the the beauty of of podcasting. (laughs) The book we really, really are talking about in this moment is Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Doug, thank you so much. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Tasha Urich and Douglas Knoll, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.